0: Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is, lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio.
1: Well, let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
0: And also to you
1: from Psalm 40 I waited patiently for the Lord.
0: And he inclined inclined my feet and heard my
1: cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay.
0: And set my feet upon rock and established my goings.
1: And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God.
0: Many shall see it and fear shall trust in the Lord.
1: Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust.
0: And respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies.
1: Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done.
0: And thy thoughts which are toward us.
1: They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee.
0: If I would declare and speak of them, they are more
1: than can be numbered. So lift up your hearts. We
0: lift them up
1: to the Lord. Let's pray. God, which art the only expectation of thy saints, whose advent into this world is set forth in the head of the book, graft, we pray thee thy law in our hearts to the end that we, declaring thy righteousness, may be saved from every peril. Wherefore, we say, glory be to the Father, in whose book it is written that the only begotten, only begotten should do his will. Glory be to the Son, who saith, Lo, I come. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, who openeth our ears as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, and amen. Amen. Well, we continue to work our way through the liturgy, and this morning we come to a new heading in our worship service, which is consecration. Uh, So far we have discussed the call to worship and the confession, and now we come to the third uh, C in covenant renewal worship, which is consecration. So what is consecration? To consecrate something is to cut or divide. It is to distinguish one thing from another. In Hebrew, this is signified by the word kadash, which is a verb that gets translated as to make holy or to sanctify or to consecrate. We see in many places how God consecrates something. For example, in Exodus, we see Aaron and his sons are consecrated as priests by having special garments and anointing oil placed upon them. In Leviticus, we see that when an animal sacrifice is offered to God, it becomes holy, it becomes consecrated. In Old Covenant worship, the basic order of animal sacrifices was first, the sin offering, second, the burnt offering or ascension offering, And third, the peace offering. We follow this same general pattern in New Covenant worship, and the church has pretty much done this uh, from the beginning, except now Christ and us in him are the sacrifices. Confession is our sin offering. Communion is our peace offering. And between these two sacrifices, we have the consecration or the burnt offering. In this ritual, hands were laid upon the sacrifice. It was then killed and its blood was sprinkled around the altar. After this, the animal was skinned and cut into pieces. The legs and the inward parts were washed and then everything was placed on the altar and burnt with fire. The sacrifice then ascended to God in smoke. This is what happens when God lays hold of us. We offer ourselves to him in the Lord Jesus, and then his word cuts us up. His spirit washes our inward parts. This is why Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word is like the priest's butcher knife. When we hear the word read, when we hear the word preached, when we sing the word in psalms and say it in prayer, God is at work consecrating us, preparing us for the fire. You can either die outside of Christ and burn in hell, or you can die inside of Christ and ascend to heaven, transformed by the God who is a consuming fire. This is what the word does to those who believe, and so receive the consecration of your God. This reminds us of our need to confess your sins, so as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen.
0: But we are risen and stand upright.
1: For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ.
0: Thanks be to
1: God. Our sermon text this morning is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. These are the words of God. "'though I might also have confidence in the flesh. "'If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, "'he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, "'of the tribe of Benjamin, in Hebrew of the Hebrews, "'as touching the law of Pharisee, "'concerning zeal, persecuting the church, "'touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. "'But what things were gained to me, "'those I counted loss for Christ.' that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do— Forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, Be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so, as ye have us for an example. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself let's pray together father we thank you for the power and promise of resurrection life we ask that you would renew us in the inward man by the preaching of your word for we ask in your holy spirit we ask for your holy spirit in jesus name and amen In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a series of parables about what the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Have you found the kingdom of heaven? Have you found something so valuable that you would be willing to give up everything for it? This is what Philippians 3 is all about. It's about the treasure that Paul has found and hid and is willing to count everything as loss for. Do you know this treasure? As we come to Philippians chapter 3, we come to the beginning of the end of this letter. We'll probably just have one more sermon, possibly two after this, and we'll be done with the book. But the first word of chapter 3 is this word, finally. Finally. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And so the joy that we talked about when we began this book, the joy in chapter 1, verse 4, where, he, where Paul was making his prayer requests with joy, is going to continue on unto the end of this book. This joy that Paul has is the joy of the man in Jesus' parable. The joy of a man who has found treasure in a field and is now waiting for that property to close so he can take possession of it do you know this kind of joy the joy of hope of anticipation it's what you feel when you uh, buy something say you buy something online and you're just waiting for it to arrive there's a kind of joy in expectation for children this is usually the joy of friday when school gets out when the bell rings Or maybe it's summer vacation, summer break. That is what you are hopeful and joyful looking towards. Well, for Paul, the object of his joy and hope is that by any means he might attain to the resurrection of the dead. To be fashioned like unto Christ's glorious body is what Paul has found and hid and desires more than anything else. And this is what all true believers likewise await. And so we could look at Philippians 3 as kind of like the story of how to buy a heavenly real estate. It is the story of how men can exchange a temporal and vile body, to use the King James, for one that is glorious and imperishable. That's where we're going in this chapter. Let me set the context for These verses. Uh, In chapter 1, Paul expressed his joy and thanksgiving for the Philippians, since they were the first church to support him financially. He's currently, at the time of writing the letter, in prison in Rome. He's awaiting trial, but he is hopeful that soon he will be released. He has just received a gift from the Philippians by the hand of Epaphroditus, and then this letter, this letter of Philippians, is really a thank you letter, along with other words of encouragement. The dominant themes that we've seen over the last nine, ten weeks have been joy in suffering, love and humility, and the need for these qualities to be in us if we are going to be united against adversity. The book reaches a climax at the center, Philippians 2, 6 to 11, which we, we read on, uh, on Christmas Day, and there we're given the example of Christ, or what we might call the Christ pattern. And this is the model that all Christians are called to imitate. You remember uh, that sermon on Christmas Day, Christ, who is God, being in the form of God, takes on human flesh. He humbles himself unto a death, death on a cross, and because of this, God hath highly exalted him above every name, such that all will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that's the heart of the book, the center of the book, and then everything else kind of ripples out from there. This Christ pattern is a pattern of humiliation before exaltation. You must descend in order to ascend. And this Christ pattern replicates and multiplies itself in those who have the mind of Christ, in those who can say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We saw this last week in the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus, faithful ministers who risk their lives to serve Christ and his bride. Like Christ, they give up things. They give up safety, security, their reputation. They take on the form of servants. And because of this, Christ will exalt them and reward them richly on the last day. Now here in chapter 3, we see this same Christ pattern, the same humiliation before exaltation pattern playing out in the life of the Apostle Paul. Like Jesus, Paul is going to humble himself. He is going to give up everything he had and was that gave him cause to boast, and he is going to exchange it for something far better, namely resurrection from the dead. So the force of this chapter, if you just read it and you meditate on it, and really the force of this whole sermon is just to get us to ask ourselves, what does the Christ pattern look like for you? How must we humble ourselves if we will be exalted? What must we give up in the here and now if we want everything in the world to come? That is the question this text forces upon us. So with that as kind of an overview of the chapter, let us Uh, jog through these 21 verses. This is a lot of text. Um, I'm going to spend more time on the opening section and then uh, move quite rapidly through uh, the last two sections. Uh, The text neatly divides into three. Uh, Verses 1 to 11 are Paul's response to the threat of false teachers. Verses 12 to 16 are Paul's resolve to press on toward the prize of eternal life. And then verses 17 to 21 are Paul's admonition to follow this Christ pattern so starting in verse 1 he says finally my brethren rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you to me indeed is not grievous but for you it is safe this is essentially Paul's way of saying uh, the warning I am about to give you is something you've already heard But it's no problem to repeat myself. It's the job of pastors. And if you're a parent, you know, part of your job is just repeating yourself, (laughs) saying the same thing over and over uh, to your children. And this is what, what Paul is doing here. It's no problem to me, and it's safe for you. And notice he says, it's important that this is said again in writing. So some things should be said verbally. Some things should be put in writing. And this is one of those things. So this is Paul amplifying the importance of the verses that follow. So verse 2, here comes the big warning, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. So who's he talking about here? Uh, Who does this refer to? In this context, uh, dogs, dogs in American culture are kind of cute. Well, they can be cute. Some can be absurd. Um, but but uh, dogs for, for the ancients, sorry if I offended, offended you. Wait until I talk about cats. Um, in this context, uh, dogs are outsiders. They are unclean. They are scavengers. Uh, they're, they're the kind of thing that returns to eat its vomit, okay? Uh, so this is an inspired and intended insult from the apostle, from the Holy Spirit, And this is a pejorative for those who are evil workers, who mutilate the flesh. Yes, God intends to insult these people. There is a word play uh, in the Greek here. You might be wondering, uh, concision. This is kind of a a strange word, and this doesn't really show up anywhere else in the the New Testament. But there's a play on word here between uh, concision and, you can kind of hear it, circumcision. And the sense is that these, uh, what we'll call Judaizers, are teaching that you must be circumcised if you want to be saved. Jesus saves, but you also must be circumcised. And so they're not actually, Paul is saying, they're not actually practicing circumcision. Instead, what they are practicing is concision or mutilation. Paul says in Romans 2.25, "...if thou be a breaker of the law..." Thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Now, uh, circumcision—it's kind of awkward, but it's something that appears throughout the Bible, and it actually is of major importance for us to understand what it is, what its purpose is, uh, because so much of the New Testament revolves around whether you, as a Jewish Christian, need to have you know your disciples circumcised or not. So, let's talk about circumcision for a moment. In Romans 4.11, we are told that circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith. A sign and seal of the righteousness of faith. And so when Abraham was told to circumcise himself and his household, that cutting of the male private part was testifying that a Savior would be born to crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. But... He would be born, this child would be born, not according to the flesh, like Ishmael was, but according to God's promise, as Isaac and eventually Christ was. In other words, circumcision is saying salvation is not going to come by works of the flesh, by carnal copulation, but rather by the grace and promise of God, who opens the barren womb, who brings life from the dead, from Sarah's womb, and who overshadows the Virgin Mary, and brings forth the Messiah. Circumcision was a sign and seal of God's grace, of the gospel. It was a symbolic castration that said, I put no trust in the flesh to save. My faith is in God alone. Abraham was the original reformer, we might say. And So this sacrament that was once commanded by God in the Old Covenant, Genesis 17, 14, and uh, testified to the coming of a son who would make them righteous, becomes obsolete after the righteous one comes. And so to continue with circumcision as a covenant sign after that son of promise comes is actually to deny that Jesus is the Messiah. To keep on doing circumcision after the thing comes is to say, he's not the one. It's an outright denial of Christ as the chosen Messiah. So after Christ comes, circumcision loses its status as a sign and seal. And baptism becomes the new covenant sign and seal. You see this in Colossians 2, 11 to 12. And so these dogs, these evil workers, the concision that the Philippians must beware of, are Christian false teachers. They are people who teach salvation in Christ, but require circumcision and thus deny him by their works. Now, um, if you are a a careful reader of scripture, you might be wondering, if circumcision is mutilation after Christ, then why did Paul circumcise Timothy? Remember that? Uh, Was Paul being hypocritical? Let me give you the short answer to this. Uh, question: uh, The short answer is that circumcision is only mutilation when it is intended as a sacrament for salvation, which is what these false teachers were claiming. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that in Christ he is so free that he can observe the Jewish laws and customs in order to win Jews. And he can also live as a Gentile when he's with Gentiles. He says, I am made all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. And so Timothy was voluntarily circumcised as a free man in Christ in order to win the Jews, in order to remove that stumbling block from his ministry. As it says in Galatians 5, 6, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith worketh by love. This is also why Paul says in Galatians 5.2 that if you accept circumcision as a covenant sign, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So this is one of those places where the intent and purpose behind the action makes an enormous difference. As a covenant sign, circumcision is mutilation. It is a denial of Christ, but as a means to win Jews to Christ it was a thing indifferent. You could do it if you wanted. Paul was free in Christ. Timothy was circumcised, but Titus, he was not. Paul was free under the law of Christ. He goes on in verse 3 to explain his reasoning. Verse 3 says, For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So this is to say that we, the church, are the true seed of Abraham. Christians are the heirs of what circumcision signified, and circumcision is and always was of the heart and in the spirit. Romans 2, Deuteronomy 10, Jeremiah 4. And so Gentiles who have uh, never received physical circumcision are still and can be justified and righteous because they were circumcised in their heart. And so verse 3 is really a description of whether you are born again. It's a description of whether your heart has been circumcised or not. Do you worship God in the Spirit? Do you rejoice in Christ Jesus? Do you put no confidence in the flesh? If your answer is yes to all of those questions, then you can be assured that you are born again. You are the true circumcision. In verses four to seven, Paul elaborates on what this means to boast in the flesh or put confidence in the flesh. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. This means that of all the Jews then living, Paul had more reason to boast than any of them. For whatever these Judaizers boast in, Paul can outdo them. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin in Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. So this is important because unlike many of the Jews who had apostatized or who lost their tribal identity while in exile... Paul had his papers in order. He was a pure-blood Jew. He could trace his family lineage back to Jacob himself, not as a descendant of Leah or Bilhah or Zilpah, Jacob's concubines, but of the beloved wife, Rachel. If anyone could claim that Abraham was his father according to the flesh, Paul was it. And yet he counts that ancient heritage, which was a genuine blessing, a gain to him, he says. He counts that as loss for Christ. He goes on in verse 8 and doubles down. He says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. What is Paul's logic here? If you think about what uh, the body produces, stuff goes in and stuff goes out. According to the flesh, we are all dung factories. And so Paul is saying, I regard as dung whatever comes from the flesh. And I am going to exchange this dung factory, he calls it a vile body in verse 21, for something far better, that I may win Christ." In verse 9, he continues, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Look at Paul's mindset here. Paul's mindset towards the resurrection is by any means necessary. And this is one of the marks of true faith. Do you have that kind of mindset about the resurrection? We regard whatever our flesh boasts in as worthless. We must give it up, count it as dung. Whatever gives you your sense of worth, of being special, of being unique, distinguished, better than the other guy, must be regarded as excrement next to Christ. And then we esteem Christ, we esteem the knowledge of God and the resurrection from the dead as a treasure worth giving everything for. If you knew just how valuable Christ is, it would make every carnal thing worthless. Because nothing compares in value to God. and So I ask again, have you found the kingdom of heaven? Have you found the treasure that is Christ? In verses 12 to 16, Paul clarifies that this uh, perfection he strives for is something he has not yet attained. Verse 12, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. This is kind of a clunky translation, uh, but he's saying in effect, I have not yet reached the completion I long for, but I keep striving to take hold of Christ because Christ has taken hold, apprehended me. As we saw back in Chapter 2, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work within us to will and to do for his good pleasure. Same idea here. Paul is striving like an athlete for the prize, for resurrection life. And he wants all who are mature to have this same mindset. This is the mark of maturity, that you run hard through the finish line. We are not yet perfect, but we still strive for perfection. And we take hold of Christ and find that Christ has already taken hold of us. This is what spiritual maturity is. So are you preparing now to finish well? Are you preparing for that day when maybe you are, uh, you're the one with dementia saying insane things or forgetting things? What will be in your heart in those moments? Are you storing up treasure in your heart, God's word in your heart, joy and hope in your heart now for that day? Finally, in verses 17 to 21, we get a call for the Philippians to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. He says, uh, verse 17, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so, as ye have us for an example." So this means uh, closely observe those who live in accordance with this example you have in us. The us being Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Remember, he's going to send them on ahead of him, and he wants the Philippians to imitate these men. So observe this Christ pattern in them, this humiliation before exaltation pattern, and do the same yourselves. And the reason is because, verse 18... For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. But our conversation, or uh, this is that same word, citizenship, uh, that we saw earlier in the book, our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. The reason the reason the church needs faithful ministers and faithful examples is because it is very easy to lose sight of Jesus. It is dangerously easy to drift away from your first love, and to become accustomed, a just acclimated to this world and its values. Notice how Paul describes these enemies of the cross. Their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, and they mind earthly things. These are people who satisfy their own appetites. They glory in what God calls perversion, they wave their rainbow flags and celebrate sodomy. They promote what is shameful in the eyes of God and then boast about it. These are enemies, Paul says, of the cross. And when you live, as many of us do, in that kind of oppressive, godless culture, it can wear you down. It can wear you down to the point where you don't even realize how worldly you have become. You don't realize how much of the world's catechism and confession of faith you have internalized. You can recite it uh, by heart. Instead of loving what God loves and hating what he hates, these enemies of the cross start to reinterpret scripture. They deconstruct and reimagine a God who matches the spirit of the age. You see this when churches turn Sunday into a show for unbelievers. Entertainment instead of actual worship of the triune God. And this is the entropy of all flesh, and if you allow it, it will drag you to hell. Paul says, I tell you now, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. These Our tears that we are too immature to understand and too callous to cry ourselves. I tell you now, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul knew what was important, he knew what was valuable, and his emotional life was changed by knowing who God was and what he had done for him. Paul was serious about Jesus. He was serious about the dangers of worldliness and false teaching corrupting the Philippians. Remember, these are tears over one of the healthiest churches in the New Testament. Imagine what he felt for Galatia, for Corinth, for Rome, when false teaching arose. Imagine what Paul would say about the church today. I think there would be joy, great joy at the gospel's growth, and also weeping over the idolatry amongst us. I'll close with this. I said at the beginning that this chapter forces a question upon us, and that is, what does the Christ pattern look like in us? Would people be able to recognize the Christ pattern if they saw our lives? And so I ask, And I ask with you, what are the things that we must give up if we would attain to the resurrection? What must we count as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ? The answer that every Christian must eventually come around to is everything. And eventually, everything will be taken from you. You will die. The question is, will you live again? Will you be fashioned like unto his glorious body, or will you be resurrected unto the judgment of the second death? Christ is valuable beyond comprehension, and it is suicidal to reject what he offers unto us, life everlasting. And so turn to him and be saved, all the ends of the earth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is a a high bar for us to attain to, to give up everything, to be willing to count all the things that make us feel good and to count them as loss, to give them up, to follow you. Father, I ask that you would help us to see that you are truly worth that. You are worth everything. You are worth more than everything. And you have done so much for us. Father, forgive us for not weeping at the idolatry around us, at the idolatry in us. And we ask that you who are merciful would be merciful to your church. That you would be pleased to blow upon our nation, upon our state, upon this region, the winds of repentance, the winds of revival, the wind of the Holy Spirit that we might attain together unto the resurrection of the dead. Pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. One of the other names for the Lord's Supper is the Eucharist. The Eucharist. This is just the Greek word for giving thanks, and it is how Jesus begins this ritual meal with his disciples. Jesus took bread and gave thanks. Thanking God is an essential part of Christian worship, and it is also the primary way that we guard ourselves from idolatry. When we acknowledge that God is the giver of life and bread and wine and every good and beautiful thing in this world, we in turn are made more like the God that we worship. We are transformed into something more alive, more good, more beautiful and true than before. Giving thanks leads to transformation. Communion with God makes us more like God. When people refuse to give thanks and worship something other than God, they are actually devaluing themselves. Scripture says that we become like what we worship, and so to worship something that is lifeless is to worship death. To worship idols is to commune with demons, and that is where refusing to give thanks will ultimately take you. Ingratitude ends in the demonic. Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten twenty one, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. And so if we are to come to this table properly, we must come to this table with hearts of thanksgiving. We must come with our hearts cleansed from idolatry. So come and give thanks. Come and be made more alive. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. When you pray this week, uh, say to God or even write down those things that you are prone to boast in. List the things that need to be counted as lost for the sake of Christ and then ask God to break the power of those things over you so that you might be free and as joy-filled as the Apostle Paul. Receive now the benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Amen.